Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And then those of Israel lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and, and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for one-fourth they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. And then all this group of men shouted out with a, a loud voice to the Lord their God and they said, and we'll come back to that in a second. Father, we pray that as we uh, look at your word today, as we look at this, the longest recorded prayer in your word, that Lord, you would teach us what real, authentic worship looks like. God, would you do a work in us that we would see your worthiness, Lord, that we would understand who you are, that there truly is none like you, and that our hearts would respond in a worship that's pleasing to you. Please do this work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really interesting how this chapter starts because some of the things that are being described here are actually seem a bit backwards. Um, if you remember from Nehemiah so far, what we've seen is we've seen uh, God called Nehemiah to, to go back to Jerusalem to help those that have come out of the uh, captivity to, to the Persian captivity to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Those walls have been rebuilt. And now they began to, to kind of reinstitute worship. They're having this kind of dedication and worship time. And it, it, in the beginning of the month that he's mentioning here, they began by having a feast day. They, they, they entered into the Feast of Tabernacles we talked about. And they spent time uh, that, that first seven days kind of having this feast. And eventually they got to a place called the Day of Atonement. Though Nehemiah doesn't record that day, that would have also happened at this month. And then they get to the end of these feast days. And these feast days would have ended around the 21st or the 23rd of the month, somewhere around there. And what happens is they kind of take a day off and then they start this whole new time of fasting. And you might remember earlier how, how when they first kind of were having this feast day and they were reading God's Word, that they were under such conviction. They were being so exposed by God's Word that the temptation was to be just overwhelmed with guilt and grief. And Ezra the priest had to say, no, 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 this is not a time for grief. This is a time for rejoicing. And he wanted to make sure that they were connecting what God had promised them and what God had done with joy, with delight. They would know that they are God's people and that by itself is reason to rejoice. And so he says, no, 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 don't weep. He says, you know, drink the, drink the sweet, eat the fat. It's time to celebrate. God has, is restoring His people. Well, they have all that time and here they... They, 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 they now, after this time is over, a time when you think they just disperse, it's like they still want more. They're, they're hungry for something more. And what's described in these first four and a half verses is really kind of the form of this wanting more and what it looks like. So, so they went from not just feasting, but also fasting. They decide, okay, we've, we've been celebrating the Lord, we've been fasting, uh, we've been feasting, it's time for us to now fast. But also it says that they started separating themselves. And it's really important that we recognize that this was more about religious separation, not just racial separation. This was not about the other races being bad. This is about the fact that every nationality worshipped its own God. And so Israel said we need to kind of separate from those who would worship from somebody else. In fact, we have a parallel of this 
In Ezra chapter 6, where it says that the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the land, that would have been others of other nationalities, who had turned from their corrupt practices to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So this wasn't just like, okay, sorry, you, you're not one of us. You're not Israeli, therefore we can't be with you. This is more like, no, we're going to worship the Lord our God. And anyone from any nation who wants to worship the Lord our God is welcome. But then also we see that they, they spend this a fourth of the day reading the Scriptures, continuing that practice of reading through the Scriptures, and probably the indication is they're doing what we saw earlier in chapter 8 where they read a bit and then the priest explains what it means and then explains how they're supposed to walk in it. But they do this for, it says, one-fourth of the day. That is three hours of Bible study. Did you hear that? Three hours of Bible study. So my 45 minutes isn't so bad. And they spent another three hours of praying, of responding to God in prayer. And what we see happening here is you have this not just spending time, but actually time well spent. That they're not just saying, okay, if we do it for a really long time, then God will be happy with us. If we have a long service, then we'll show how spiritual we are. No, that wasn't the point. The point was, let's, let's just t- let's take some good time. Let's separate some good time to seek after God. But also, he mentions all these men, most of whom were Levites, who lead in this prayer. They would have been the ones who were actually uh, praying out this prayer with the rest of the group agreeing. But it's important that we see that this was about corporate participation, not just observation. That the people of Israel weren't just kind of going, oh, that's nice. What beautiful prayers are being prayed? Or what a, what a powerful service this is. No, they were participating. The prayers that are prayed here in this chapter are the prayers of all the people of God. Now, what we want to talk about today is talk about what we want to call authentic worship. And often in our church culture today, when we think of worship, we think of the first bit where we sing songs. That's when we're worshiping. But worship really is just the declaration of the worth of something, the declaration of the value of something. That's what worship means. It's its worthship. What is it valued at? And so when we're talking about the worship of God, we're talking about declaring or responding to the worth of God. And we're going to see in this section that what that really requires is that we have an authentic view of God as well as an authentic view of ourselves. And so what we're going to do is we are going to read through this, but just little by little, we're going to kind of go at breakneck speed. I could have easily done this in three hours. (laughs) But instead what we're going to do is we're going to do this in the 45 minutes that we have, and we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to show us what authentic worship is like. I want to give you three main things. Starting in the second part of verse 5. The Levites stand up and they say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heaven, and with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven, that's a term for angels that God created, the host of heavens worship you. So what we're going to see in this first section is really a big part of our worship should be us celebrating the work of God. 
Celebrating what God has done and what God is doing. I shared this some time ago, that, that God had been convicting me uh, in recent times about the fact that sometimes I, I picture God as kind of static. He just kind of sits there on His throne watching what happens. But that's not how God is projected in Scripture. Our God is a working God. He's an active God. And one of the greatest acts of worship we can bring is just to acknowledge that. And when we see God working, celebrate the fact that, man, God is working. God is moving. God is doing things. But it also is us looking back to see what God has done. And of course, what happens here when they begin to seek God in prayer, when they're taking this time to, to, to worship the Lord corporately, what are they doing? They're remembering their God is the one who created and sustains the universe. This is important. You see, when we talk about God, we're not talking about some sort of concept. Not some sort of religious concept that helps us cope with life. We're talking about a being. An eternal, supernatural being, the one who always is, the one who made all that has, was made. In fact, the, the reality of God being creator, the fact that we are not just praying to a God or a idea or something that we think is important, but the one who exists whether we believe in him or not, the one who's created all things, that idea is the foundation for all of our prayers. If you study the prayers of Scripture, you'll see they almost always start with praising God as the creator of all things. And when the psalmist wants to, or wants to hear from God or wants to have God's help, what does he say? He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When he's saying, God, I need your help. I practically need you to intervene. And I'm coming to you because you made and sustain everything. He sees God that way. Interesting, Paul talks about Jesus, describes Jesus in these same words. Listen to this. Colossians 1 says, Christ is the invisible, Im or is the visible image of the invisible God. He, that's Christ, made the things we can see and the things we can see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. And notice, He holds all creation together. Those of you who vocationally are involved in the sciences, do you realize when you are studying creation, that has the potential to be an act of worship? You are studying what God has done. You are studying what God holds together. That's what you're doing. God has done this. When you marvel at creation, when we see the, 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 beautiful, the beauty of a sunset, do you know in all seriousness we can say God's done that? God has, has created a universe uh, that, that He sustains, that is not just a universe that functions well, but a universe of beauty that is beyond just having a mechanical purpose. God's done this. Now not just that, He, he moves on from that in a sense, starting in Genesis 1, he now jumps in a sense to Genesis 11, and he says in verse 7, You are the Lord God, notice, who chose Abram, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. Now, you probably know that story. Abram, his name means exalted father, but Abram married to Sarai. They were barren. They, were not allowed, they could not have children. Incredibly painful for anyone to go through that, but specifically in that day and age, even more so. So God chooses them and gives them a promise that out of you, I'm going to make many, a, a, a nation of many people. 
which is like pretty mind-blowing considering they were infertile. And so what happens? Eventually, he gives them the name Abraham, which means father of a multitude, even before he's had children. God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. And it says in verse 8, You found his heart faithful before you. You made a covenant with him. He gave him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Mormites, and so on and so forth. To give it to all his descendants, you have performed your word, for you are righteous. The point is, he brings up Abraham because why? God initiated and, listen, sustained his relationship with Abraham. That's what God did. That's what God does for us. If you have any inkling to know the God of Scripture, that inkling comes from God Himself. It's Him niggling at your heart. It's Him pulling, him, pulling you to Himself. Now you might go, oh, no, nah, it's my parents. They're on my case out making charming church on Sunday. Or no, 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 it's, it's my upbringing. It's just kind of what I'm used to doing. Oh, no, it's my neighbor. Such a nice person. And so to get him off my back, I said, fine, I'll go with you to church, you know. No, it's, it's, it's God who wants you here. It's God who wants you for himself. He, just like he did with Abram, he initiates the relationship with us. He goes on to bring it up to kind of going into the book of Exodus. In verse 9, he says, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of his land. For you knew they acted proudly. I want you to mark that phrase, acted proudly. Keep that in, in mind. We're going to bring that up later on. And so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them and so you went through the midst of the sea on dry land or they went through the midst of the sea on dry, on dry land and the persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into mighty waters. He's summing up, right? As they're praying, they're summing up the story of Exodus. God sees the children of Israel. They're in bondage in Egypt. He, he delivers them from Egypt. He leads them out of the desert. He leads them across the Red Sea and destroys the Egyptian army all this time. The point is, he's trying to bring up this reality that the God that we're worshiping is the God who delivers His people from oppression. That's what He does. Some of you are here today and you're believers, but you're still under this oppression. You need God to bring a deliverance. You need to say, God, I need you to break through in this in my life. And God wants to do that. This is the God that we serve. This is the work that He does. Then He goes on in verse 12 to 15. Sort of, can, kind of, in a sense, backtracking in some ways, talking about the wilderness wandering of the uh, Israelites as they left Egypt before they crossed the Red Sea. And he says, Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they traveled. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws and good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock. Now we'll talk about the bread and water more in a second, that provision of God when we get to verse 22. But notice, it's talking about how God led His people. He led His people through the wilderness wanderings. He led them with His presence. 
His presence was, was uh, kind of covered by a pillar of cloud during the day, also provided shade in the hot desert sun, but also then a pillar of fire by night provided guidance in the dark desert night. God was by His presence guiding them day and night, literally. But also, He, he led them through His Word. He brings up these precepts. This is all just kind of code for the Word, the Scripture that God gave through Moses, the Law of God. Now, we as New Testament Christians sometimes see the law as negative, but we shouldn't. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about God's law. Notice how it sounds just like it's being described here in Nehemiah. Paul says in Romans 7-2, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. The problem's never been with the law. The problem's always been with us. God leads this way. Now all this we're talking about, celebrating the work of God. When we, worship is about us going, God, you've done every good thing. You've made and sustained this universe. God, you, you initiated relationship with me and you're keeping me in relationship with you. God, you're the one who delivers from oppression. I can go to you when I'm feeling just so weighed down. And you can help me. You will help me. And Lord, when I just feel like I'm wandering, when my, as we sang today, when my heart is wandering, Lord, I can trust that you will lead me past that. You will lead me through that time. This is the God we serve. This is, we celebrate His work. And I love the fact that the whole, a whole third of this prayer, is just, it just begins with talking about how all that God does. All that God does. Do you realize this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world? Every other religion in the world focuses on what you need to do. What you need to do to be right with God. What you need to do to experience nirvana. What you need to do to have whatever is promised you. But you know what the scripture emphasizes? This is what God has done. That's why He's worthy to be worshipped. Now, The second thing we want to see, authentic worship is also not just about celebrating the work of God, but it's also about exalting the character of God. In verse 16 it says, But they and our fathers, now this is, remember, they're praying about Israelites, they and our fathers acted proudly. The same thing that they prayed and the same declaration they made about the Egyptians who were at that time God's enemies, who were at that time the nation of Israel's enemies. The Egyptians acted proudly. He says here in verse 16, they pray here in verse 16, our fathers acted the same way. He says they hardened their necks, they did not heed your commands, they refused to obey, they were not mindful of your wonders. In other words, they saw all the miracles that God had done to all the plagues He had brought upon Egypt to get them out of Egypt. He says, you did not, uh, that you did among them, but they hardened their necks. And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But notice what it says. But you are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. I want to come back to that in a second. It says, even when they were a molded, even when they molded a calf for themselves. This is a reference to uh, the book of Exodus when they're crossing the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. 
And so Aaron and his brother is down there, supposed to be kind of overseeing God's people. God's people get restless. They go, you know, where's God who brought us out of Egypt? And so Aaron gets feeling nervous and feeling a bit of peer pressure. So he gathers everyone's gold earrings and he melts them down and he builds, a, a, a molds a calf. And he says, this is Yahweh. You can worship Yahweh here. That's what he does. Now here's what happens. He says, even when you did this, listen, and said, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt and were great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them down the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothing did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. I want you to think about the picture that is being prayed here. That... Here Israel, as they're one in the, through the wilderness, God's going to lead them to the promised land. In their stubbornness, it takes 40 years instead of one year. And, and in that process, they decide to make an idol to form in their own minds and with their own hands what they think God is like and worship that instead. Do you understand what that's like? I want you to think, think of it this way. Maybe, maybe this will help. You, you who are married or even just in a committed relationship. Imagine your partner or your spouse saying to you, I, I thought of the ideal spouse. And it's not you. It's the person down the road. But if it's okay with you, we can still stay married. I just want to spend more time with them. Would you put up with that? How would you feel about that? But that's exactly what God's people did to their God. They, they committed spiritual adultery, basically. And yet, here's what it says, going back to verse 17. It says, even though they did this, God still stuck by them. Because why? Because it says, you are God. Here's your characteristic. Ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. Now, the, 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 the person, the, the Levites who are praying this are almost quoting verbatim uh, Exodus 34. Let me read that to you. This is, this is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is when Moses has asked God, God, I just want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory, you die. And so he hides him in the, in the, in the rock and he, he passes by him. And here's what God says about himself. It says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Notice, by no means clearing the guilty. Notice that last phrase isn't, isn't mentioned here in verse 17. Why? Did they forget about it? No. They didn't forget about it. They knew it was completely true. This is why they're so broken. They are basically realizing, man, God, this has to be true of you because you should have wiped us all out a long time ago. But you have to be who you said you are. You have to be this, this kind. You see, what he's talking about here, what he's exalting here, is what we might call the undeserved kindness of God. Kindness. That God is that 
kind to us, that He's that gracious to us. He goes on to say in verse 22, Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. And so they took possession of the land and, and Sion and the kings of, of, of Heshbon and of Og of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. And you brought them into the land in which you told their fathers to go in and possess. And so the people went in and possessed the land and subdued them before the inhabitants of the land. The Canaanites and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished. Notice what he says, verse 25. They took strong cities in a rich land. They possessed houses full of all good things. Cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God told them, listen, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to lead you into this promised land. And when I do, you're going to have all these things. Cisterns you didn't dig. Orchards you didn't plant. Houses you didn't build. Those are going to be my provision for you. That's how God provides. Completely out of free grace. Completely because He Himself is just faithful. You know, now Jesus reiterated this principle to us in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Now if God so clothes the, grace, the, the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you little faith? He says, Therefore don't worry. Instead what? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That is a promise. Now we get nervous of that promise because we don't like prosperity gospel. We don't want to claim it and it's ours. But the truth is, we're not talking about that new Mercedes. We are talking about daily bread. We are talking about God making sure that we have what we need. God promises we will have this. Why? Because He's a faithful provider. That's the kind of God He is. Oh, because you're such a perfect steward with your finances? Probably not. Oh, because you've worked hard, you deserve all that? Well, you have worked hard. God says the worker is worthy of his wages, but it's bigger than that. No, He provides because He's a faithful provider. That's what He promises to do. Moving on, verse 26. Nevertheless, what happens? They, that's God's people, were disobedient and rebelled against Him and cast their, your law behind their backs. Like, yeah, who needs this? And they killed your prophets who testified against them to turn to them, to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of your enemy who oppressed them in a time of their trouble. And when they cried to you, you heard from heaven according to your abundant mercies and you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is probably a reference to the book of Judges. And how God would over and over again provide for His people as they're conquering the land. What would happen? They'd forget about God. They'd worship false gods instead. God would say, okay, i got to chasten you. He'd bring the peoples of that land to chasten His people. They'd cry, oh God, we messed up. Forgive us. And every time, over and over again, God would say, okay. And He'd deliver them from that oppression. But it says in verse 28. Well, actually, I'll come back to verse 28. Here's the reality. What is he talking about here? He's talking about what he says in verse 27. He's talking about your abundant mercies, God's abundant mercy. 
How merciful is God? When Jeremiah is weeping over how corrupt God's people have become. I mean, he's just grieving. It's so bad. It's so bad that Jeremiah, though he's a faithful prophet of God, they want nothing to do with him. They, they chuck him into a pit. They say, we're sick of hearing from you. We don't want to hear anything else from you anymore because they so don't want to hear from God, even though they're supposed to be God's people. And, and, and Jeremiah, just even, even the kings and the princes don't want to listen. And Jeremiah is so grieving, he writes a book called Lamentations. A cheerful little book you should read when you get a chance. Lamentations. But even in the midst of lamenting over how disobedient God's people can be to their God, here's what he says, listen, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in Him. Guys, listen. Do you know one of the reasons why we don't exalt God in our hearts? Because we don't realize how much mercy He shows us. In fact, you know one of the stupid things that we do, one of the deceptions that we bring, is we sin and we think, oh, that's probably wrong, I just shouldn't do that. But I think I got away with it. And we mistake mercy for permission. Oh, I must have got away for that. God must be okay with the fact that I'm a... You know, adulterer or a workaholic or a liar or whatever. I must be okay, must be okay. No, first of all, there's chasing as we see, and God will always eventually chasing his people if they refuse to turn back. But also, just because God's being merciful doesn't mean he's giving you permission. And we don't exalt God because we don't realize, gosh, how merciful has he been? He hasn't snuffed us out, he hasn't cast us aside. Over and over and over again, he shows abundant mercy. How often? Every single morning. Then in verse 28, it says, But after they had rest, what did God's people do? They again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hands of their enemy so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that, they might, that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they, there it is again, acted proudly, just like worldly people. And did not heed your commands, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrug their shoulders. So this is not just rebellion, it's also apathy. Without, uh, without raising your hands or indicating this, I wonder how many of us today just feel apathetic in our hearts. It's not really that bothered about the things of God. This is what it's talking about. They stiffened their necks and would not hear. Yet for many years, for many years, you had patience with them and testified against them by your Spirit in your prophets. This is what's meant by the Spirit in the Old Testament. It's what the Holy Spirit was doing through prophets, priests, and kings. If you're a Christian, you need to know you have a privilege that Old Testament saints did not have. You have the very Holy Spirit living in you, and they didn't have that. Only prophet, priests, and kings had that. And yet they were still accountable to what those guys said. It says, yet you did not listen to those prophets. Therefore, he gave them, God gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, notice, in your great mercies, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. Why? For you are God, gracious and merciful. What is he talking about here? He's talking about God's enduring patience. 
October 4th, 1987 is when I came to faith in Jesus. When I knew that Jesus was who this bald-headed preacher guy was talking about and I needed to put my faith in him. I was what Jesus calls being born again. I was born again. It was a radical day. And I have to say, I remember the first few weeks of my you know, my, my walk with, with God. It was exciting and it, and it was brilliant. And I had this mindset of like, wow, this is amazing. I, I, I belong to God. And, you know, if I die today, I'm going to be with God forever. And I know God and God knows me. And there's also in the back of my mind this attitude that says, God, this is great. I don't have to go to hell. And you've got a rocking guy on your team. Me and you, God, we're going to change the world because I rock. And you're pretty good too. <laughs> I wouldn't verbalize that, but that was kind of the subconscious thought in my head. You know what? I've been a Christian now since then, 31 years, however it is. And now I realize, oh God, how radically patient you are with me. I should be disqualified. I should be set aside. I should be judged. And yet you're so radically patient with me. And you know why he's that way? Because he's that way. I don't know anyone else is like that. My wife Sarah is pretty, pretty amazingly patient. Sarah is pretty amazingly patient. But he, believe it or not, even sometimes her patience runs out. I remember one time I was whining to her about stuff. And Sarah looked at me and she said something that I won't repeat. But she said something very harsh. It, it, right to my face. And I was kind of so shocked by it. I realized I was whining like a baby. I needed to stop it. But I was also, I realized, gosh, even my wife has limits. But God's patience endures towards his people. This is what we talk about, exalting the character of God. Now listen, at this point, I really need to address some of you who may not know this God. You know of this God. You hear what I'm saying? You're going, okay, I get that. I can see why people would believe in Christianity. That's all kind of appealing stuff. You know of this God, but you don't know this God. And I want you to know that one of the reasons God is patient is because of you. He wants to know you. He wants you not just to know of Him, but to know Him. You know, the Bible says about all these Old Testament examples, the New Testament says these are for our good, for our example. Listen. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things be- these became our example, it's the Old Testament believers, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they've also lusted. In other words, the example they give us is a bad one, so we don't follow it. Don't do what they did. A wise person learns from their mistakes. A wiser person learns from other people's mistakes. Paul wrote this in, in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I love the way the, the New Living Translate, uh, Translation paraphrases this. He says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that it's His kindness that is intended to bring, to turn you from your sin? God's not saying, hey, it's no big deal, I don't mind. I was at an event recently where a young man, lovely young man, loves Jesus, but I think mistakenly said, hey, God doesn't care about your sin. Just come confidently before Him. Like, oh, no, no, that's, that's not really how it works. God cares deeply about your sin. God hates your sin, the Bible says. But you know what? He loves you. And He's patient with you and He's patient with me because He wants us to know Him in truth. 
He wants us to be able to worship Him in truth. Don't you know, don't you realize that all of us are already worshiping? We're just not necessarily worshiping God. We're already worshiping. We already declare the value of something as most important in our life. We already do that. It could be our family or the family we wish we had. It could be the job we have or the job we wish we had. It could be the works that we do or the works we think we should do. And we think that's the most valuable thing, but it's not. God Himself is more valuable than anything else. And our hearts are restless until we worship Him as such. And yet God is patient as He waits. In fact, the Bible says, listen, the whole reason Jesus hasn't come back is because God is patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord isn't really being slow about His promise. That's His promise to return. As some people think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does, want, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to come to repentance. This is what the scripture teaches. This is what we're seeing in, in Nehemiah 9. That, that these people are coming to a place where they, they're seeing God work in their midst. God's restored them back to Jerusalem. The walls are rebuilt again. They're safe from their enemies. They've just celebrated for almost a month. And they get, they get to the end of this feast and they realize, God, we are so messed up. We are so needy. But God, you are so amazing. See, this is not a a people who are wallowing in their own wickedness. That doesn't help any of us. It doesn't help you. These are people who are realizing, gosh, Lord, when I see myself against the backdrop of how you want to relate to me, I realize, wow, I can only be saved by your grace. I can only be saved by your mercy. See, we exalt the character of God because there's none like Him There's no one who gives us such undeserved kindness, such faithful provision, such abundant mercy, and such enduring patience. This is the kind of God that the Bible describes. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we worship God not just by getting excited and singing songs with enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is a good thing. In fact, the word enthusiasm it comes from a Latin word that means in God. En and then theos. Enthusiasm, in God. So enthusiasm is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But enthusiasm itself isn't necessarily the worship of God. Just being enthusiastic about songs we're singing isn't necessarily worship. No, that can be, but worship is about us celebrating this is what our God has done and it's, it's, it's exalting this is what our God is like. Not how great we are, how great He is. Lastly, worship is also, listen, authentic worship is about us committing our lives to Him. Look at how these guys, how honest these guys are. They say in verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God. You know us Californians have ruined that word awesome? I say it so much. Oh, the cinnamon rolls were awesome. (laughs) Have you seen that show? It's awesome. We ruined it. Us West Coasters, we've ruined that word awesome. Actually, awesome means that which promotes awe. Some, Some of your versions, if you have the old King James or authorized, it says terrible. It's not really fitting. It's that which promotes awe where we go, wow, there's nothing else to say. They're saying this about God. God, 
we look at you and we say, wow, wow. Why? Because you who are he who keeps covenant and mercy. Now they say, look, because you're this way, don't let all the trouble seem small to you, all the trouble that they're going through. Remember, they're in, they're back in Jerusalem, the walls have rebuilt, but the infrastructure's still a mess. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And they're saying, God, it's not done yet. They still are under the rule of the Persians, which we'll talk about in a second. They says, don't forget about that. that. That has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all on all our people from the day of the kings of Assyria until this day. Lord, we're still not where we're supposed to be, they say. However, you are just, verse 33, in all that has befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. You see, what was happening here is they are saying, okay, God, we're going to commit to you with your covenant with us as our assurance. Our assurance can't be, we're going to get this right someday because they look at their whole history and even their present day and go, we ain't getting this right. It's got to be in your covenant what you've done to make it right with us. It says, even the stuff that we've done wrong, we know that we deserve this. It says in verse 34, neither our kings nor our princes, our priests or our fathers have kept your law nor heeded your commandments, your testimonies, which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom uh, or in many good things that you have gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked ways. This is important because we're seeing what they're doing is they are committing, they're saying, okay, Lord, you've done all this great stuff. You are a covenant God and we're committing to you because you've made covenant and we're still going to commit to you in spite of our past failures. What's the worst thing that you've done this year? What's the worst thing that you've done this week? What's the worst thing that you've done this morning? Don't you know, because of the God that we serve, the God of the Scriptures, you know what this means? In spite of all that, we can still say, Lord, I'm yours. You are merciful and gracious. There's none like you. I'm still yours. I'm still yours. Then he says, here we are, your servants, literally your slaves. Or they didn't say your, sorry. Here we are, slaves today. And the land that you gave... uh, to our fathers to eat its fruit and bounty. Here we are, slaves in it. In other words, he's acknowledging the fact that they are still in this place under the Assyrian Empire. And it yields much increase to the kings, that's the Persian kings you have set over us because of our sins. And they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. Lord, we're still in bondage. We're still under this crooked government. And because of all this, they say, verse 38, we make a sure covenant. Literally, it's a promise. The word covenant isn't there. It's really we make a promise and we write it and our leaders and our Levites and our priests seal it. In other words, we are committing to you, Lord. We're promising that we're yours. We just want to only be yours in spite of the fact that we still are, in a sense, in captivity that we're still strangers in the land. Listen. The scripture says this in the book of Hebrews, speaking of Old Testament saints who walked faithfully with God, 
and didn't even see all of God's promises come to pass. It says in Hebrews 11.13, All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth. In other words, they committed to God even though they knew in this life they're just passing through. You see, this idea of Christianity being about pie in the sky by and by, and so then it'll be, it'll be okay, and so now we just kind of wait for that. No, we're not just waiting. We are walking through in a commitment to God. That's what we're called to do. We're called to walk through in our commitment to God. Why? Because that's worship. That's what real worship is. You might be thinking, okay, I'm not much of a worshiper (laughs) after hearing all that. But if you do, you're missing the whole point. See, the whole point is we don't worship God because we're gaining something from it. And we don't worship God because if we don't, we, we miss out on something grand, though I think we do. We're worshiping God because simply He's worthy. That's what authentic worship is. It's saying, God, I know who I am and no worship that comes from my lips will ever be enough, but you are worthy of anything that I can direct towards you. Your worship of all praise and all glory and all obedience and all surrender. That's authentic worship. Not just songs we sing, but our lives for Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that though we fall short, Lord, though we, 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 we look at ourselves and, and our, our past mistakes and we look at our current situation, in spite of all those things, Lord, we say, here we are, we're yours. You've bought us at the price of the blood of your own son. Lord, you've forgiven us of our sins. You've cleansed us from all unrighteousness. You've committed to us until we see you face to face. You've promised us you who started the good work will be faithful to complete it. Lord, may we just say, we're yours.